Welcome back to another episode of the Green Section podcast series. I'm your host, Adam Miller, Northeast Region Agronomist and Director of the Education and Outreach Program. Uh, we're getting closer to the holidays, so hopefully everyone has a chance to you know, disconnect from the golf course a little bit and enjoy spending time with friends and family. Uh, I know that's oftentimes very hard to do, especially as we're getting into the time of year where winter injury you know, starts to creep into our minds. So uh, this episode is really all about uh, winter injury prevention. I talked with Mike Richardson from University of Arkansas and Kevin Frank from Michigan State University, really two experts on winter injury. Um, had them on the show to talk about different prevention strategies. You know, we covered a lot of ground talking about cultural practices leading into winter, cover strategies and temperature thresholds and how proxy and maybe other products might play a role in winter injury and and even dealing with some snow and ice removal from greens. So uh, a lot to unpack in this episode. I really hope you enjoy it. Here's our conversation with Mike and Kevin. Mike, thanks so much for joining us today, taking the time out. Uh, I know you've got a really busy schedule with conferences ahead and, and everything else, so no doubt winter injury is going to be a topic of discussion um, you know, over the next few months. So I wanted to get started with our conversation and, and hear kind of from you. What, what have you observed in terms of the differences in cultivars between the Ultra Dwarfs, like Champion, Mini Verity, Tiff Eagle, um, and then even some of the newer cultivars like G12 and Sunday and, and Mach 1? Well, uh, yeah, Adam, we've, uh, you know, we've been doing some work with, uh, with you guys for the last five or six years, uh, here at Fayetteville. And, and we, we designed a, uh, a trial site that basically had, uh, the three, you know, predominant cultivars that have been used in the, uh, industry over the last, uh, decade or so, um, Champion, um, Tiff Eagle and Mini Verde. We've done a number of trials, uh, most of them looking at cover strategies and one thing that's been really clear with with those three cultivars is that is that champion is definitely the weakest of the three when it comes to to winter injury we've seen just about every year even in pretty mild winters at our location um, it, it would be slower to green up and it may, may not have experienced winter injury some some uh, winters but it uh, definitely was always slower to, to kind of come out of the gate in the spring not really seeing any differences of note between Tiff Eagle and Mini Verde, I think they're they're probably pretty similar in terms of their winter uh, injury, but um, we've certainly seen uh, when you know we don't use covers, uh, you know, in some of our uncovered treatments, uh, they can experience winter kill uh, just as much as uh, as any any of the Bermuda grasses can. So they're still susceptible, but I think if you were you know looking to um, establish uh, Bermuda grass greens in a more northern location um, of those three, I would certainly lean towards Tiff Eagle or or Mini Verde. The newer cultivars, I don't I don't have much experience with them. Um, we we plan planted a that intep warm season putting green trial back in 2013 uh, which had it had Sunday in it and um, we we had actually really severe winter kill on that whole trial and we ended up losing it we just we tried to replant it back once and then we had more winter kill and we just never could get the trial off the ground and get it going um, didn't really make any significant observations about Sunday 
but I, I did visit with uh, Aaron Patton uh, at Purdue uh, because he had a trial in Bloomington, Indiana that, that he was able to get established and, and collect data on. And he, he felt that, that Sunday was pretty similar to, to Tiff Eagle in terms, of, uh, in terms of its winter survival. And he, he even thought that, that maybe Mini Verde was not quite as good as Tiff Eagle at his location, but um, we haven't observed that uh, here. The other two that you mentioned, um, I truthfully have never... I don't even think I've ever seen them, uh, much less um, we don't have any, I think, growing here in the region that I'm aware of. So uh, just don't really have any idea yet um, how, how adapted they would be to more, you know, northern environments. What about turf maturity? I guess you, you mentioned, you know, when you first established some of these plots in 2013, you know, how does that factor in, you know, year one versus year 10 or, you know, just you know, an immature green versus an, a, a mature green? Well, there's no question that, you know, um, any of these warm season grasses, that first winter is always, you know, kind of the trickiest point because, you know, until the grass really develops um, some more significant rhizome structure, uh, which oftentimes it doesn't develop a lot of rhizomes the first year um, uh, with Bermuda grasses in general. And so um, that, that first year is definitely going to be a little bit, um, you, you're going to more likely see winter injury. And that might be a case where, um, as we talk about covers and covering strategies later, it might be worth, you know, that first winter to to do some more aggressive um you know, covering practices just to make sure that you try to get it through that first year. But uh, I think once you get through that first year, then we start seeing, you know, uh, these grasses developing their, their rhizome structure a little bit better at that point. And then so it's a little bit better protected from uh, from winter winter injury once it gets, uh, gets to a little, you know, gets into that second year of maturity. Okay. Yeah, it really makes sense. I mean, you're, you're talking to, you know, a, a novice when it comes to ultra dwarf management. So that's certainly what I assumed. And, and I know our staff in the field has felt some of those same observations, you know, that yeah, that first year is no no harm in being a little extra cautious, um, you know, just with, with winter, winter kill potential. So let's talk cultural practices, things like, you know, mowing height, you know, as you enter winter, is there kind of a good rule of thumb to prep ultra dwarf greens, you know, with, with mowing heights? Well, I don't know if there's a good rule of thumb or not, but uh, certainly, um, you know, the the idea of raising the mowing heights as you as you start into the fall of the year, uh, and then even more maybe as you get to the to right to the edge of dormancy, uh, is always a good a good idea. And and you know a lot of that that uh, knowledge is based on um, you know just what we see and observe out, out in the field on golf courses is that you know. Uh, we always see more winter kill on, on areas where, you know, approaches or collars where the grass is being mowed at a very low height of cut. And then you, once you get out into maybe a fairway height of cut or anything taller than that, then suddenly you don't see any problems. So, so we know that mowing height going into the winter uh, is important. Um, you know, Jordan uh, Booth and, and talking with him and as we were writing in this paper we did recently for the USGA, uh, I think he, his recommendation was about a 25% increase in mowing height uh, while the grass was still actively growing. So again, if you were at a tenth of an inch, you'd want to get it up to maybe 0.125 uh, as uh, while you still are getting some growth on the turf, and then maybe another 25% uh, as you start into dormancy. So, you know, ultimately, if you're managing, you know, your greens at a at, at a tenth of an inch, you probably want to be somewhere about 0.15 or maybe even a little higher uh, through the winter months. 
and I think that's okay from a playability standpoint. Uh, I think with the, you know the modern lightweight rollers, it's just you know you can still get smooth surfaces, and of course when it's dormant, they tend to be faster anyway. So uh, you don't really need to be down at those uh, those you know ultra low, uh, ultra low heights of cut uh, through the winter to still have a good uh, playing surface. Yeah, I completely agree there too. I, I I know I've talked to some friends that manage ultra dwarfs and speed in the winter is a concern <laughs> it, right. it just things can get out of control and then there's you know if it's not growing you can't really do much to you know to stop it so um it's nice that it's you know let's let's do something good for the grass and make sure we still have some usable hole locations out there so speeds don't don't get out of control uh sort of keep keeping on the cultural practices topic you know what about like nitrogen and potassium how do they factor into winter survival. I think there, I don't know if there's some new research from Dr. Gertal, uh, you know, about with potassium, maybe thinking it's not as important as what it was it once was. Well, you know, there's, there's, that was a topic that we, we kind of explored, started exploring again about 20 years ago, because a lot of the, um, if you read the, the turf grass textbooks, they all would kind of recommend that you should stop feeding with nitrogen and, and, and start feeding with potassium going uh, into the winter. And um, when I came to Arkansas and, and realized that winter kill was a, was a significant problem here, uh, we did some studies where we, um, or we started investigating that idea. And one, one of the things we really found in the literature was that there wasn't a lot of data to support that idea of potassium over nitrogen going into the winter. Um, but there was some pretty good data out there that showed that, you know, um, you, you know, if you had a balanced nitrogen potassium approach going into the winter, that it didn't affect uh, winter injury. There was only a, f a couple of papers where they saw that if you went to a straight nitrogen program or maintained a straight nitrogen program going into the fall, that you could potentially see some winter injury. So my, my philosophy on that and what I recommend people is that obviously as the grass starts slowing down, you don't need to fertilize it as much. Uh, but uh, I would continue to keep a balanced nitrogen potassium um, uh, approach going into the winter. And I, I, I just don't think there's any evidence out there that, that continuing to feed with nitrogen is going to cause, cause any problems. And, um, you know, another thing that you kind of get from, you know, um, from continuing to, to feed with nitrogen is the grass will stay, you know, greener a little bit longer into the fall. And, you know, uh, my simple mind kind of looks at that as, you know, green grass is photosynthesizing grass. And so if it's still, you know, building carbohydrates going into the winter, then, then, you know, that sh should be a positive thing. So, um, I mean, you don't want to keep it green, obviously too late. You want it to go into its dormancy phase, but it's, um, I still think it's a good idea to continue to, to, to spoon feed with some nitrogen going into the winter. We've we've made it through, you know, whatever, 10 minutes or so, you know, trying to get to this topic that you've spent, you know, the past couple of years really researching, and it's been a tremendous help. And, and you know, I wanted to dive into this this idea of winter covers. And I don't know if the research was spawned out of some tough winters, but we've certainly had several very difficult winters recently, and it's taught us, you know, the, the cost of 19 covers, you know, somewhere between 15, 30,000, you know, that's far less expensive than the cost to having to potentially repair your greens that experience some severe winter injuries. So obviously covers seem like an essential tool for golf courses with ultra dwarf greens, you know, when they're located in that, re in a region that has sort of freezing temperatures. So, you know, 
deploying the covers is really the question here. You know, it seems like the, you know, the 25 degree threshold, you know, to put covers out has kind of been ingrained in superintendent's mind. Uh, do you see another number, you know, sort of becoming a new safe threshold when covers should be put out based on your research? Well, we, we do. I mean, you know, we've, um, you know, we've probably done uh, five or six years of studies now. Uh, the first few years, we were really focused on that idea of, okay, can we lower that cover threshold temperature uh, uh, so that uh, we're still getting adequate protection, uh, yet we're also reducing the number of covering events that we have to do during the wintertime. And so uh, in those studies, we basically looked at um, 25 degrees as being kind of the standard, and then the lowest temperature threshold that we, we used to deploy the covers was 15 degrees. And so over uh, really uh, five years of work, um, we've really never seen a big difference between 25 and 15. Um, a couple of years when we had really rough winters, the 15 degrees were a little slower coming out of the, the winter than, than, the, than the higher temperatures. Uh, but we really didn't see a big difference in terms of winter survival. So um, there's no question you can go below 25 degrees. And, um, you know, when I, when I talk to superintendents about this, one of the things that I always tell them is that, it's, you know, it's not, there's no one size that fits all. If we're talking about the players course um, and, and they've got a big spring tournament and, and those greens have to be perfect once they get to that tournament, they got plenty of staff and they can go out there and still cover at 25 degrees and just take the most conservative approach. Uh, but if it's a, a course that's, uh, you know, a lower budget course that has, you know, a, a reduced staff in the wintertime and so covering and uncovering is a, is a big chore, um, then certainly going down to 20 degrees or even down to 15 degrees, I think, is still uh, a safe number. Uh, I think we've, we've decided that, you know, in order to just hedge our bets a little bit that 20 degrees is probably a safer number than 15 just to, to make sure that we don't have... Uh, any issues there, but um, uh, like I said, I still feel pretty confident that that a course could do 15 degrees and still and still be uh, safe in terms of uh, protecting their greens. What about you? You know, when you think about, I know there's not a lot of zoysia grass greens out there, uh, but there's certainly a lot of interest. It seems like you know, do these do these thresholds work for zoysia? I think you know, some maybe feel zoysia greens are you know maybe supposed to be as tolerant as like Meyer fairways, but doesn't seem to be doesn't seem to be the case in some of the field observations we've we've noted so what you know what do you think about zoysia greens and cover thresholds well i think the usga needs to sponsor some research here at the university of arkansas <laughs> and we can look at uh, cover thresholds on zoysia greens so <laughs> all right yeah I, let's let's do it that's uh 1-800-DR-COLE-THOMPSON yeah right that's there. right we'll so, uh, have to uh yeah. I'll, I'll let you uh, plant that uh, uh that seed uh with dr thompson so um, you know, I don't have a, a lot of information on, on that. We, we just started working on these zoysia greens. We've been working primarily with a cultivar called Laser. I know the University of Tennessee has got a couple of other uh, uh, greens-type zoysia grasses that they're looking at as well. We've had this Laser green in for two years now, so um, we have had another trial going on it. So we've been pretty conservative about covering the green um, even at 25 degrees, just, just to try to make sure that the research doesn't get compromised. But uh, this spring, we had a 
a very cold spell uh, in mid-February where we got down to almost minus 20 degrees uh, here in Fayetteville. And so I, I had my student, Thomas Walton, uh, go out and, and basically roll the cover back on about six foot of that zoysia green just to see how it would respond to, um, to cold weather. And uh, after he had done that, uh, a few days later, we got about six or seven inches of snow. And so we had some snow cover then protecting it. So he actually went out and, and removed the snow from about a 10 or 12 foot strip of that, of that area that was uncovered. And what we saw was that where there was no snow cover and there was um, no cover, um, the zoysia grass green basically got smoked. I mean, there was nothing uh, that came up in that area. Where there was, where there was snow cover, we did see um, some survival, but it was spotty. It wasn't, it wasn't, um, you know, um, it, di it didn't fully survive uh, that, that cold temperature. So my, my gut instinct, and again, I don't have any data to back this up, is that they're probably going to be pretty similar to ultra dwarfs in terms of, of the covering strategies that have to be used. And, and, you know, we've seen this in the past with some of these really fine textured dwarf zoysia grasses that even maintained at, at fairway heights of cut in, in trials that we've done here uh, can experience significant winter kill. And, and even so a couple of local courses that we have here that have Matrella fairways, uh, again, when you get into those tight cutting heights, uh, approaches, collars, and things like that, they've experienced winter kill on those as well. So um, I don't think there's any question that these zoysia greens are going to have to be covered. Um, you know, it, is it similar to the Bermuda grass in terms of temperature thresholds? Again, I don't, don't really know that for sure, but uh, uh, I, would, I would be cautious, um, you know, with, with the use of covers uh, on those things. I remember the, the weather last February really was pretty remarkable. I don't know if it was sort of a hundred year type low temperatures, but you were really active on, on social media posting pictures sort of of the, the aftermath, so to speak. And there was one thread that I forget who commented, but it was like, it's pretty clear <laughs> there's a significant difference in winter survival with, you know, covers versus no covers or some of those, some of those pictures were pretty, pretty striking. Yeah. Dead versus no dead, not dead is uh <laughs> it's an easy rating. That's right. I don't need statistics for that. <laughs> so. Yeah. What about, um, you know, thinking last year obviously is was so extreme, uh, but we might have something similar. You know, maybe we can expect more of those types of severe cold cold snaps. Um, talk to me a little bit about sort of the double, double cover system or even like insulation with straw. I know the, the straw insulation is, is sort of an old standard uh, when it got really cold. Yeah, you know, the last two, two winters we've had uh, trials, well, actually three winters that we've had trials with some form of, of um, you know, material under the cover. Um, we started off using some foam batting material uh, that, we, that we got out of uh, a company in uh, North Carolina. And then, then we did two years of studies with the USGA to look at um, straw under the cover, this batting, foam batting material. And then we also uh, looked at the use of, um, uh, you know, like a pool noodle. In our case, we used ABS uh, drainage pipe uh, that we placed under the covers to raise the cover off of the green. We haven't done double cover work here, but I'll, I'll comment on that in a second. The straw material and the batting material especially definitely improved the, the soil temperature under the covers compared to the cover by itself. But we didn't really ever see any difference in winter survival with or without that material under the 
under the cover. Now we did see that when we used the ABS pipe and that got the cover about oh I don't know maybe four or five inches off of the off of the surface. Uh, we actually had lower temperatures um, uh, there than we did with those other other you know uh, air gap materials and so I'm not sure exactly why that is but I'm wondering if because there's such a large space is that it can cool easier than maybe when you've just got a very very narrow air gap uh, under the cover so um, even though that was probably one of the easier ways to to lift the cover um, it was also the one that, that had the, the lowest soil temperatures compared to any of those other materials. And so we haven't really seen a benefit from using, you know, straw or something like that under that. But again, if we had, you know, if you were going to be experiencing, you know, sub-zero weather for, you know, a number of days, um, it makes you sleep better at night. I would say it's still not a bad uh, approach to, um, um, you know, giving yourself an added bit of protection. You know, one of the things about that, Adam, is that dealing with straw or dealing with you know this foam batting material I mean it's going to add significantly to the to the labor associated with covering and so and then there's some other issues it's like where are you going to store this stuff and how are you going to get it up I mean so it's a it definitely adds a layer of complexity to the process that that's probably going to be not well received by a lot of superintendents if I were going to use something like that I would probably try to just focus on areas of greens that have historically had more winter injury problems maybe you have a green that's getting you know a little bit too much shade so the turf is a little weaker there uh, those would be the kinds of areas where I would still say that would be probably a, a good approach but going wall to wall with that type of material I would say is probably um, not not something I would recommend at this point yeah the shade component I mean that's you know superintendents in the northern half of the U.S. where you know they've got a history of winter injury on just a couple of greens and it's you know whether it's shade or, or surface drainage or whatever you know treating each green differently is something that I think superintendents do all the time and so you you look at if it's you're in that severe situation you know you do the same thing you just adjust and figure out okay this is a little bit of a weaker green let's maybe do a little bit extra I've seen the process of a cover being installed it's you know if it's not a windy day I mean it can get done pretty quickly I'm very impressed with how with, with the speed of that um it but I've never seen the straw portion, and I can't imagine that's an easy, uh, you know, quick process. So it's, yeah. Well, in, in our studies, we actually used um, straw straw blankets that are designed for erosion control. You'll see them on the sides of highways. They just kind of roll them down onto a steep slope uh, to help uh, minimize erosion. And, and so they were relatively easy to roll out, kind of similar to the covers. You were able to get them, kind of just position them near the green and then just kind of roll them out before uh, putting the covers on. One of the problems with those is that they're, they're relatively expensive uh, on the front end and we got through two seasons with our covers, but I, I mean, with the straw uh, mats, they were definitely starting to show their age by the time we got to the end of that second year. So those would probably have to be replaced, you know, relatively frequently uh, if you were, you know, having to put them out quite a bit. All right, last question for covers, at least we've kind of, you know, really beat, beat this one down. Um, for you know, superintendents with POA greens, it's not that uncommon for them if they're using covers to have some sort of, a, you know, temperature monitoring underneath the covers, even looking for CO2 under the covers. I know some, some superintendents have done that. So how can superintendents with Alterdorfs, you know, use data, whether it's weather data or, or something else to try to help reduce the risk of winter injury? 
Yeah, well, you know, one, one of the differences is that I think, and again, I'm, I'm speaking out of ignorance here, but I, I think most of the northern greens are using impermeable covers. Is that correct? There'll be a combination of both. But when they're really okay. focused on the, the temperatures underneath and the CO2, it's most often impermeable, correct? So, yeah, most of the covers that we use on Ultra Dwarf are going to be permeable covers. Um, so I don't think you would ever, you know, be concerned about buildup of things like CO2 under those. Installing temperature probes uh, is is fine. I mean, if that's something that is, you know, that the superintendent just wants to monitor and see, you know, what kind of temperatures they reached, or you know, maybe try to determine if there's a threshold number where they know they're they're likely to see winter injury. One of the things that we've recommended is that you know there are simple temperature probes, or if you're using something like a Pogo, uh, and I think even the Spectrum. Uh, new TDR unit has a temperature uh, sensor on it uh, that you can just go out there and basically stick the probe right through the permeable cover and, and get a measurement of that if you want to see what it is rather than trying to install something permanently. But again, I know there are things like uh, SPOs and, and things that are, you know, that can constantly monitor and, and transmit data. So I, I don't think there's any reason, you know, you shouldn't do that if you're, if you're just interested in the numbers. Probably, and then we're going to talk about this, I know a little more in a minute, but I don't think superintendents do enough monitoring with their with their TDR probes. I mean, these grasses have to stay hydrated during the winter. And so I, I think it's it's worthwhile to, at the very least, you know, do some routine checking with your moisture probes just to see what your volumetric water contents are. And, and you know, I've had questions from a lot of superintendents, well, what, sh- what should it be in the wintertime compared to the summer? And I don't really have a good answer for them other than to say, well, if you've if you figured out what a good number for is for you in the summertime or, or what a, a low number is for you in the summertime, well, then you can probably use those in the winter is still a pretty a pretty close approximation to where you want to be with your moisture levels. Yeah, you, you've led right into my last question about, about moisture and, and how it plays a role. Thinking of other parts of the moisture, you know, discussion with like wetting agents, what, what type of work have you done there? Try to help just give superintendents just sort of that, that extra, I should go apply wetting agents even though the grass isn't growing or I should make sure that's part of my, my late fall program. What do you think? We should have been smart enough to know this on the front end, but we weren't. Desiccation has always been recognized as a as a potential source of, of winter injury, uh, so that that's not a new idea. But for whatever reason, we didn't really think our way into that type of work. Uh, but we we really had just kind of a serendipity moment. Uh, where we went out onto one of our greens back several years ago, um, and I noticed some squares of, of the tiff eagle were greening up faster than other areas around it. And so we went back and, and looked, and sure enough, uh, Doug Karcher had had a wetting agent trial on that green, and it had been treated. I think the last treatment went out sometime in September, and even a September application in that particular case was showing a benefit. So that got us to thinking that, well, maybe there are some desiccation issues going on or, or, or the redevelopment of localized dry spot and hydrophobicity in the wintertime. That led us to uh, start doing some work on, on late fall, really early winter wetting agent applications to see how that might impact winter survival. And so the studies that we did, um, in, in every case, we were basically just doing a single application with a wetting agent uh, just prior to putting the covers out the first time. So in uh, most years, that was early December for us here in Fayetteville. We saw benefits um, on, on a number of those trials, not always. And, and what we kind of deduced from the data and the environmental data was that um, if we had a very wet winter, 
uh, where we were getting a lot of moisture, uh, we we rarely saw a wetting agent effect when it was when it was very wet. But when we did see a wetting agent effect, those were the drier winters that we experienced, and so um, it, it did lead us to conclude that you know um, hydrophobicity can can return in the winter time while the grass is dormant, and of course you can't see it. Uh, when the grass is dormant because the grass is not growing or showing any wilt stress. So really our recommendation now is that, you know, you should make a wetting agent application sometime, you know, late in the fall, early in the winter after the grass goes dormant, uh, just as an insurance policy, if, if, if nothing else. Because again, if, it, if it's a very dry winter, it's probably you're going to get a benefit from it. If it's, if it's very wet, you may not, but it's not a terribly expensive application to go out and make uh, just, uh, just as a preventative. Yeah, I've I've seen some pretty remarkable impacts from wetting agents. For sort of the same thing that you described with uh, Karcher's work, where you're like, wait, wait, a what's what are those squares out there? And you know, it's January or February. <laughs> That's where we we did some work when I was in grad school at Purdue with uh, Kale Bigelow. We we did a bunch of wetting agent trials, and they wrapped up in like August, September, and same thing. All of a sudden, I was on the plots in. January, February, I'm like, whoa, that's, you know, it was pretty remarkable. That was on, on Bentgrass. So obviously a little bit of a different, different, uh, different situation there. So Mike, really appreciate you taking the time uh, to, to talk with us today. Obviously you've, you and Jordan Booth developed that fantastic article for the green section record that really covers all things, you know, winter injury prevention uh, for ultra dwarf. So we're going to make sure that that's included with this podcast. So thanks again for that article. Thanks for your time today. It's been awesome talking with you. No problem, Adam. Anytime. We're now going to move into our discussion with Kevin Frank, who's a professor at Michigan State University. Kevin has a ton of experience with winter injury, and he and several of his colleagues at Michigan State have really done a lot over the past few years to dive deeper into all the factors around putting green winter injury on polo greens. Kevin, let's get into the discussion around POA greens and, and winter injury and winter injury prevention. In my mind, it, for, for POA, it starts with the fall, doing things like raising the height of cut, you know, being careful with nitrogen, you know, so the plant's storing carbohydrates as opposed to using them, you know, things like that. So from a height of cut perspective, it seems like the old standard was to you know, raise your height uh, of your greens to, you know, like 150 or something. But I'm, I'm hearing more and more superintendents tell me like, yep, we're, we're raising the height to 125. So uh, that, that's obviously a byproduct of lower mowing heights in season. Uh, so in your experience, you know, what do you think is a sort of a good height of cut recommendation superintendents should target, you know, when they're trying to reduce winter injury on their polo greens? This is a great question, Adam, and I refer a lot of the things that we think we know or we've tried to learn over the years to some, what I call like the epic winter kill events in the north of, I think it was 2013-14 uh, and then other parts of the north in 2014-15, so it's kind of like a back-to-back slam on uh, annual bluegrass putting greens. And one of the things with those icing events, because that was most of that damage was primarily from ice cover, so anoxia type injury was that you know you, you went out and you looked at these golf courses, and in many cases, eighteen of the putting greens were dead. Um, annual bluegrass putting greens, of course, but you looked at the fairways, which also were dominated by annual bluegrass, and they had minimal damage. You, even more obvious was you looked at the collar on the putting green which, you know, is just a little bit higher, obviously, than the mowing height on the green itself, and it was unscathed. 
So, you know, a lot of people brought from that, well, I'm going to, I'm going to raise my mowing height and maybe that'll save me from anoxia injury or ice cover injury. And, you know, I've thought about this over the years and, and some of the things I thought about initially were just that, well, if you have a higher cutting height, does that give you a, a physical buffer maybe to that ice layer not being smashed right down on the turf. Maybe there was some oxygen or gas exchange that could even occur during that. You think, well, maybe that could happen, but realistically, okay, you have superintendents that are mowing at, what, eighth of an inch now is almost commonplace. And like you're saying, they bump it up a little bit uh, starting in September or something, you know? I mean, I don't know that that really is gonna do a whole lot. I've often thought that probably that height of cut, if anything, might have to do with what I talk about with a lot about winter injury in the north is just how healthy is your plant going into winter and a higher cutting height uh, you're probably not as stressed throughout the entire year you know to me it's like when they when I get that question what should I raise the height to I would say you know if you can bump it up as you go through the fall and maybe so I don't know if you're at 100 you go to you know, like I think we started out saying, boy, can you get to 150? I don't know that most people are going to do that because let's be honest, in the north in the fall is some of our greatest golfing weather. And, you know, you already struggle, I think, to some degree with, hey, I'm going to punch holes in the greens and uh, people don't even want you to do that in the fall anymore. So now I'm going to slow them down considerably. I don't have any data that's going to say that's going to save your greens in these severe winter injury events, but I think it's part of a, a strategy to make the plant as healthy as you can going into the fall. So, you know, whether that, depending on where you are in the north, whether that's starting to raise the height maybe a little bit in on October 1st, or whether you're uh, further north and you're saying, okay, after Labor Day, we're going to start to slow the greens down a little bit just to get plant maybe it gets a little bit healthier. This is something we're still going to research. We, we don't really have any research on it yet. It's just kind of anecdotally of, of what we've seen with it. The height of cut component of it, you're right. The fall golf is, it, it can be awesome. So it is hard to do. So appreciate the comments there. And, and I, I agree. I think we are, you know, we're asking a lot of just a, a small height change. Like, is that going to make a big difference? And then, you know, the timing of it too. I've, I know some superintendents that they're the fall golf is so important for the golfers at their their course that they might raise the height, but not until well after you know the first really hard frost. And then it's like you can raise it, but is the grass even gonna get up to that new height? Yeah, to me, it's like you almost get to the point with a lot of things with fall golfers of when is it that they're just happy to still be out there? Yeah, if that makes sense. So, and it's like when you get to that point, like you were saying, after the first hard freeze or something. Then maybe you've uh, whittled out some of the casual golfers. You got the hardcore golfers that are still there, and they're just enjoying whatever whatever weather they have left. So maybe they're willing to uh, compromise with a little bit slower greens at that time. Yeah, I've I've always made the comment those those diehards usually you know fall to late fall. That's not their first few rounds of the year. Um, so if the golf course changes a little bit, hopefully it's not, not too big of a deal for those, those folks. Let's sort of keep rolling on the cultural practices and get into fertility in the fall. Specifically, you know, I'm curious to get your thoughts on fall nitrogen inputs and, and even potassium levels in the soil. I remember a few years ago, 
when I was at the Rutgers Research Center at the, and I, I saw some of the plots. I think it was February, March, and they were doing some anthracnose work on soap, and soap potassium was a factor. And they had some pretty striking differences with, you know, winter injury. I don't know if the grass was really dead, but when their soap potassium levels were less than 50 parts per million or so. Talk a little bit about fall nitrogen, fall potassium, and, and how you think that plays a role. Yeah, so, so let's start out with, because that's most recent on my mind that you just brought that up, the, the Rutgers study that showed that, um, like you said, I, I when I looked at their data and how quickly they had recovery from that study on the potassium rates, it's some sort of winter injury. Was it death? I don't think so, because it came back within, I don't know what it was, 30, 45 days. But it certainly looked a lot different coming out of winter. And so I think you look at that, and then you also look at the snow mold work that was originally done by Dave Moody at yeah, Cornell. Uh, Cornell under Frank, under Dr. Frank Rossi. And then Doug, Dr. Doug Soldat's done some more potassium work. Um, and uh, Paul Koch uh, at Wisconsin is going to do some more looking at both nitrogen and potassium related to snow mold injury. It, it seems, at least with potassium, uh, the message is probably uh, don't load up in the fall if you're worried about any sort of winter injury, whether that's the type of injury they saw at Rutgers or whether that's snow mold injury, probably to avoid that. But, you know, I think in many respects, the, the jury on potassium in the last, I don't know what it's been, like 10 years now has really changed from us in the in the north of thinking about it as, hey, this is something we add in, in large doses towards the end of the year to enhance uh, winter stress tolerance. It seems like it's gone the other way. And if anything, you see people maybe just doing a spoon feeding approach or, um, you know, there's a lot of superintendents that are nitrogen only. You know, they're not even putting potassium out. So so I think for, for winter injury and potassium, it seems like uh, we've gone full circle on that now. With respect to nitrogen, I think the thing with nitrogen is similar to potassium. You know, you look at the older recommendations. When I say older recommendations, I'm talking about the things that were in our grandfathers of turf grass science, so to speak, of the 60s, 70s, where uh, we were all taught you put down a bulk of, or, you know, couple pounds, pound and a half of water-soluble N. If you look at the literature, it could have been uh, Halloween or it could have been Thanksgiving, depending where you were in the north. And that'd be the way to put the turf to bed, so to speak. I think that's gone completely out the window now. I think if anything, uh, you continue, especially on, if we're talking about putting greens, you continue to just spoon feed as you go through the fall. Don't try to large dose anything at the end of the year because of anything that we're thinking about right now with these winter issues, I think we're, we're looking at how climate change, how weather is changing, is affecting winter as much as it is summer. So you're thinking about, well, is it gonna, is the grass gonna have a period to go dormant like maybe it used to where you got a good hard freeze and then it stayed cold? Or like we have in Michigan, we get a lot of snow, wet, melt, uh, repeat all winter long. You know, so we have a couple inches of snow on the ground now, it's supposed to be I think 50 degrees by the next couple of days, so that'll all melt and then we'll go back and forth as we go along. The way I look at nutrition in the fall, uh, local superintendent here I talked to one time, I thought he had a, a great perspective on it. And I was asking, what do you do for your nutritional programs as you go into winter. And he looked at me and he kind of said something to the extent of, well, everything that's on the shelf, I just keep putting it out in small doses until it's all gone. So just spoon feeding whatever nutrients he has left, nothing large doses. When the growth slows, whenever that was, you're just done for the year. I appreciate sort of those types of comments because it simple is, is in my mind, always better. And, and a lot of folks, it seems like, can get very tied up in in some complex nutritional programs that does the grass really 
you know, it doesn't change that, you know, the, how soil fertility works and how the, the grass takes up the, the, the material. So um, I definitely like this simpler approach and agree, uh, you know, you want to be in control. And, and if you do throw a lot of nitrogen out there and you get some of those warm ups, like you said, you know, you can get some, some release and, and sort of cause that grass to kind of start to grow and, and maybe break dormancy. So good insight there. Yeah, and I, and I think uh, just to circle back just a little bit, I mean, uh, Dr. Soldet had done some work on that. I had followed up a couple of years later doing some work here in Michigan and similar studies. That basically, uh, the Wisconsin work was if, if you didn't apply, or let me put it this way, applications in September, you got a lot more in the plant than you did in October and November. And I saw the same thing here. I think I had October and November applications in mid-Michigan. Once you got past that earlier growing period, it just wasn't ended up in the plant. If it's not in the plant, it's in the soil. And then it's subject to, if you have thawed soils, it's subject to environmental loss through leaching all winter long. What about some other BMPs for, for fall cultural prep, deep tine aeration, you know, late season top dressing are ones that come to mind. Research is pretty limited on those when it comes to winter injury. You know, I'm curious to get your thoughts on, on both those practices. Yeah, so for deep tine aeration, I think it is one of those practices that it's not going to hurt you. I think it could help when you have small icing events, if that makes sense. You know, if you're about two to three inches of ice on top of a putting green, deep tine aeration ain't gonna save you. Um, <laughs> if it's a thin ice event and it melts or whatever and it gets down below the crown, that's the thought with the deep tine, get the water further into the profile and not have it sitting on top and freezing. I think it can benefit you. So that's something I would say if it, if it works for the superintendent in their program, I, I think it could be, it's not gonna hurt. You know, I can't tell you it's going to save it, but it's not going to hurt. Top dressing, I've always thought, would be effective as a way to create um, some insulation and some buffer from whatever winter stress it is. Um, certainly when you have, um, in the western parts of the country, the Plains states, for example, where you have more of a desiccation type injury, it's a protective layer. I've often thought in, in this part of the country where it's more water-related issues as far as melt, freeze, refreeze, all that stuff, it gives you a little buffer, it roughs up the surface. Um, but once again, you know, when we went back to the epic events of earlier, you know, 13, 14, 14, 15, saw a lot of greens that were heavy sand top dressed, it didn't matter. You know, picking back up on the top dressing, I do see, you know, courses that, you know, quote unquote, bury the greens late fall, like just really a heavy application. I have a, a concern that if you go too heavy, that that can actually lead to, you know, some sort of layering, you know, with you you burying a little bit of that, that organic matter as opposed to a little bit more of a moderate application. So any thoughts on application rates for that late season program, or is it a little bit more of the, the art and science of greenkeeping? You know, it's it, that's an interesting perspective because I've often thought, I haven't thought about that, about creating a layer with it because to me, I've often looked at it and thought when you see that, like you're saying, it looks like it's it looks like a sand be, sand putting green, yeah. like the old style that we'd see in the, in the West. It'd come out of winter and I'd look at them and go, geez, where'd all that sand go? <laughs> you know, especially if you have wet winters like, like we do that... Um, what starts out as really heavy doesn't necessarily end up that way. But yours is an interesting perspective because I've never really considered that fact of are you creating a, or potentially creating a layer issue with the amount you're putting down in the fall? So yeah, I think that, I, th I think you're right on. It's, it's, that's a little bit of the art and science of it, of trying to figure out what balance is best for you at, at your yeah, facility. Yeah, it, I've just, I've seen enough profiles that have layers. Everything seems to be in line with sort of a light and frequent program you know, and then I, I know they go like 
really, really heavy. So again, I, I really like that late fall, you know, moderate application, but it's the, when things are like totally buried, I, I wonder if that's, you know, just maybe too much and maybe not helping, um, you know, a ton. I, I like it just like I had said earlier, a little bit for that desiccation potential too, because e- even in this part of the country, we see that sometimes as you come out of spring or out of winter into spring, and you might have some dry days and just having a little bit of protection there uh, can certainly benefit, I think. So, you know, you, you kind of touched on it uh, already, but when we think of winter injury on poa or, or annual bluegrass, it's really tricky to study because there's so many factors at play. You've got shade, drainage, cold temperatures, desiccation, you know, and maybe this is just regional and, you know, to, to local to Michigan, but in your opinion, you know, what's sort of the biggest killer of, of polo grains with winter injury? Is it, is it crown hydration? Is it ice? Is it low temperatures? Or is it just sort of whatever tough winter we get? I, I think I'd, I'd phrase it this way on an annual basis. I think there's probably more crown hydration type injury than anything else, but that tends to be minor. As far as, you know, you go out to a green and it might be a, a tabletop or something of death that you have to deal with. And a lot of times superintendents are really great at identifying these things, obviously, over the years and then going, OK, so if that's my spot. I've got to figure out how to manage that so that doesn't happen every year, whether that's drainage or, you know, reshaping greens or whatever it is. Um, so I, I still think that type of injury is the most common on a, a yearly basis. The ice cover is the one that's the epic death, though, because that has the potential to kill the entire thing. And in many cases, there's not a whole heck of a lot you can do about it. Um, so I think when you look at Midwest through Northeast, that, that's a primary type of damage. Then when you get out West, it, it becomes more desiccation injury in most cases. No, I, I, I agree. We see the same thing. You know, with, with crown hydration, it's more common, but it is more localized within the green and, and typically those low spots. So I wanted to, to sort of dive into that, you know, with drainage, surface drainage being a, a, such a, a common factor in crown hydration damage. You know, when, when you do have those low-lying areas, I've always recommended, whether it's, you know, sort of a, a dry well connected to, you know, some drainage in the green um, or even using like a narrow sod cutter, you know, cutting a trench, something just to, just to help get the the water off. Um, and actually, I know one, one course, I don't know if they still do it, cutting fields in Guelph. I, at one point, they were even installing like heating cables in those trenches to make sure they stayed functional through the winter. So I'm curious, you know, what are some of the innovative ways you've seen superintendents develop a, a way to get water off the greens during winter to try to minimize the damage in those low-lying areas? The most common one I see is when you touch on just sod cut strips. It's simple. It gets you through any, if there's sand dams you're dealing with, like at the front of the green that's slowing. It's always amazing to me how much not only that little sand dam lip that you might get at the front of the green from top dressing over the years, and just the change in cutting height, mowing height, can slow down surface water flows. I've seen that on greens that there's not really much of a lip there to get over, but it's just that collar height that really can slow and back down or back up that water when it's a frozen putting surface. So I think just those channels and don't stop at one in some cases. I mean, I've seen superintendents that'll put multiple ones in at the front of their green just to try to help move that water. Sometimes you also see um, if it's an area that maybe they don't want to go to that extent, uh, they'll go on their um, large cup cutters or something, sink those down. 
um, fill them with even uh, like pea stone or something like that, just to try to remove, get some of that water below the surface. So those types of approaches are relatively simple. They're kind of a pain. It'd be nice to be able to fix the green slopes and, and everything and get rid of those pockets, but depending on the architectural style and where the green is, it's not always possible. No doubt they can be a pain, but I, I also hear on the other side of, of, of that equation, you know, when it's middle of winter and you get into a situation where you're like, oh, okay, we've got some issues out there, you know, it's hard for superintendents at that point to to not try to do something. So I'd, I'd much rather spend some time focusing on prevention as opposed to now you're in midwinter and you're trying to figure out how you, how you manage snow and ice and frozen ground and, and things like that. So it's tricky scenario. Yeah, rescuing rescuing turf in the middle of winter is not simple. So we'll, we'll touch on covers and sort of the all the, the challenges around making decisions on using those in a minute. But before we do that, I wanted to dive into some research that was, you know, done at, at Michigan State, you know, this idea of chemical priming uh, to really help POA survive winter. So I think you were involved. I know Emily Holm was involved, you know, looking at things like Primo and Civitas mineral oil, uh, even salicylic acid and jasmonic acid, again, as a way to make some applications to try to help POA, you know, just be more tolerant of winter stress. So, you know, curious to get your thoughts on these materials, you know, how they play a role in winter injury or winter survival of POA greens. Yeah, so this is some research that was, you know, a number of different studies have, have been done now over the years. And, and the, the first one started with the Civitas, the fluidide, propiconazole. I'm forgetting there, there might have been one or two other treatments in there. Part of this idea was, you know, it's interesting where research leads you, right? Because, you know, I remember sitting around with uh, Joe Vargas and Emily and myself and talking about different ideas for is there things we could do going, you know, throughout the season, or especially in the fall, that might help the turf survive uh, winter injury? And we had thought at the time, well, wh- what if we use plant growth regulators? Would that help slow down the, you know, slow down top growth, help the plant partition more resources to the crown or something to help it be healthier as it goes in? So, so we started down that route, and it was interesting because kind of like that first study, uh, we found out kind of the opposite that. For whatever reason, it appeared that uh, Primo was not helping the plants. It wasn't helping the plant when we put it under ice, survive that ice event, and recover. Um, if anything, it was kind of doing the opposite. And we found that Civitas and Mefluidide propiconazole treatments were actually uh, kind of benefiting the plant and helping it uh, survive ice and recover quicker. But the, the caveat with that was, it, it, at least that initial research, it was kind of like it showed a difference till I think it was about 30 or 40 days under ice cover. After that, all bets were off. That's not necessarily completely surprising when you think about annual bluegrass because when, when I'm sure when people ask you, it's like you get the question, uh, could be starting today or could be starting January 1st, how many days before it's dead under ice cover? And we all kind of guess and say, well, my number's 30, yours is 45, somebody else says it's 50. Um, but I would say, you know, I've seen it, uh, anything past 30, I'd be worried. So maybe those treatments helped do something in that 30-day period. When you got past that, it didn't seem to. Now, there's some other work, you know, different studies with the the uh, priming agents, like you said, the salicylic and jasmonic acid, and, and alone those didn't really seem to do anything. But it's all part of this, you know, as you go through these research projects, is trying to figure out what are different things we can do and I think that part of our challenge is many of these have been, what are the things we can do in the fall? As I reflect more, I almost think, 
it has to be moved up. It's like, what can we do all year long that helps the plant be healthier? And then really hone in on the fall of what do we do specifically? Let's not change things up or let's not rely on one product or another necessarily to save us, but think about the overall plant health. And you had mentioned things like shade earlier. Shaded plants just aren't as healthy. I mean, it's not a difficult concept. And I think every golf course superintendent knows that and advocates for, you know, removing trees to provide more sunlight to those putting greens, especially. And when you get into winter, it's not only the ice staying there longer, maybe in shaded environments, but I think it's the overall health of the plant. It's just not as healthy. So it's instead of maybe being able to survive 45 days under ice, maybe it only has 25. You know, so these are all things I think we need to consider as we try to tackle winter injury and make the plant as healthy as it can be. Yeah, the shade factor is, I don't even know how many conversations around the detriments of shade. And in, it's, I think, for golf course decision makers, you know, the people that have to, you know, oftentimes give the, the green light to go ahead and cut a tree down here or there. It's a harder concept for those folks to maybe to wrap around their head because they're they're thinking about summer, not about winter, and and I can't blame them. They're you know they're they're thinking about their golf game and their course, but there's no question. The more shade you have, the more likely that turf is for winter injury or just sort of to to, to not perform as well as as greens located in a more open environment. So uh, it's a huge part of of our recommendations when we go to golf courses, whether they've had winter injury or not. You know, we we often say, look, it's been great. You you haven't had winter injury or you know, you've had a moderate amount over the last 10 or 15 years. These trees, you know, in these locations, they're still, you know, setting yourself up for potential problems. So it's better to be proactive than reactive. Um, but yeah, it's, it's trees that are, they're emotional subjects. So it's, it's, it's definitely a hard sell for a lot of courses, unfortunately. They, they definitely are. And one thing that I saw in uh, the severe winter kill events that I hadn't honestly thought about was trying to reestablish greens and shaded environments. You know, you know, it's not only that it might have led to death, but then trying to grow back in that shade is yeah, difficult. shade. You got low soil temperatures; they're slow to wake up. It's just you know, the, the grass is weak and thin, and yeah, it, <laughs> those are those are some of the, the the more difficult visits that I've made, where I'm I'm more a psychologist than an agronomist in, in some of those situations where you're just like it'll get there. But that's that's where you at least if you've got poa greens and you're committed to those greens and you you know you're okay with. Some winter injury here or there, you know, the value of having a high quality POA nursery is it really pays off in, in that situation. Absolutely. On a similar note to the, you know, research about sort of chemical priming, you know, I'm curious, I, I know, you know, you and Emily and others have looked into these late fall applications of proxy, you know, which superintendents are doing more of to improve spring seed head suppression, that work coming out of uh, Sean Askew's program at Virginia Tech. But you guys are looking into it as to, or have looked into it related to its impact on winter injuries. So uh, talk to me about that research and if you think, you know, it's a good program for superintendents in the northern half of the U.S. to to be making those late fall apps a proxy. So so this is a fun one, right? (laughs) Uh, You're trying to decide between uh, telling a superintendent, uh, hey, this is a program that works great for controlling annual bluegrass seed heads to, wait a second, this might cause uh, the turf to be more susceptible to winter injury. Um, So this has been a tricky one to manage for us. And here's what I would say about it. Some of the research has suggested that proxy apps may in fact lead to, I'm, I'm being careful with how I say this, um, the turf being more susceptible to 
ice cover type injury or are more susceptible to recovering from that type of injury. Now, originally, and, and I think uh, Dr. Holm has done a couple different studies on this. I know the first one, I believe, the proxy rate that was being applied was significantly higher than what superintendents were using in the field for their applications. I think that's always something you have to keep in mind when we do these research projects sometimes. We tend to use applications rates that might not be completely common to the industry to see what type of effects we might see. The results from it have not been consistent year after year, just as winter kill is not consistent year after year. So I guess I look at it from a standpoint of there could be something there. I think we need more research onto it. And I think every superintendent kind of has to weigh their choices of are they seeing significantly better seed head control that there it's worth whatever risk that might be for annual bluegrass putting greens over winter uh, to apply this product? So I hate to kind of ride the fence on it, but I, I kind of feel like that's that's where we're at at this time uh, with those proxy late fall apps. Oh, I had no worries about riding the fence. We've got to do more research on it, clearly. Um, and every location is going to be going to be different too so when you think of as you go a little bit you know further north and maybe a little more susceptible to winter injury it's it's something that you you've got to factor that in so um no great info thanks no problem all right so let's dive into you know what i think is one of the more difficult decisions superintendents have to make when they're in northern areas with poa greens and that's you know whether or not to to deploy covers so uh, i've seen them work great. I've also seen a few cases where they've actually caused problems from heating up uh, underneath. So, and I often say this usually after a winter injury scenario where people are like, man, if we would have had covers, we wouldn't have had this. The comment I usually make is, you know, if covers were just that easy, we'd all get them. It's just not that black and white. It's not that simple. So what do you tell superintendents with regards to using covers to protect their pole greens? Adam, I think I spend more time telling green committee chairmen or golfers what to expect with covers than, than I do superintendents sometimes. I think it's a lot of geography of how far north you are. You know, our friends of the north in Canada, I think generally they use more covers and they use them more effectively than we do. I think also the nature of their winter, at least to this point, has been a little bit different. So, for example, where I sit in Michigan, where I describe the wet, the cold, the freeze, the thaw. There's a handful of courses around here that use covers. The challenge is always when do you tack them down and when do you bring them up? And do you have the labor to do this stuff quickly when the time comes? I think if you are a golf course that continually has winter injury on annual bluegrass putting greens, I would definitely consider impermeable covers on those greens. And, and as I say, those greens, I'm not necessarily talking about all 18 greens, right? I mean, I think we, we both have seen the scenarios where, okay, I might have five that are the problem ones. So it's probably easier for me to focus putting covers on five greens and managing them throughout the winter than it is all 18. I also think the venting is, is obviously very important, being able to, to move air in and out of those impermeable covers because as everybody knows, there's they simulate what happens with a big ice sheet. They're trapping everything underneath. The difference is we can vent them. We can blow air into them, get the gas exchange, so that they can make it through the winter without any problems. I also think for some of those annual bluegrass putting greens too, even a, a permeable cover can be a benefit in some situations. Now, it's not, once again, it's not going to save you from a severe ice cover event, 
but it will help just buffer extremes. And it'll also, I've seen where it can help just coming out of winter, where maybe it'll, it'll buffer some of the, if you have dry conditions or whatever it might be, help it get going a little bit in the spring um, as you come out of it. So to me, coverts are still, um, they have their place. Like most uh, golf courses, superintendents communicate to membership just because we have covers doesn't necessarily mean this is a panacea. We have no worries. We still have to manage them. Nor does it mean that we need 18 covers for, for all the greens because many of them make it through just fine. So moving on to snow and ice accumulation, like we kind of touched on earlier, once you're in the middle of winter as a superintendent, that's a tough spot to be when you have you know decisions to make and should we go out there and do something or, or not. And I think superintendents by nature, they're problem solvers, they're go-getters, and they're trying to, okay, let's let's go do something. Um, and that's that's not always the, the easiest decision to make. So when you look at removing snow and ice, you know, there's a lot of examples where it's helped, or at least we think it's helped. And then there is same thing with covers. There's examples where, oh man, if we if we wouldn't have removed that, or if we wouldn't have shoveled some channels, you know, to try to help get the the, the snow to to draw, you know melt off, uh, we wouldn't have some of this injury. So, what's your take on? You know, we'll start with just removing snow, um, and and then move into probably the more challenging part of removing ice. The thing with removing snow is you have to be in one of those climates where, you, you, where you're worried about the melt. If you're in a climate where it's just snow cover, snow cover is great, right? I mean, it's the best insulator Mother Nature can provide. It's porous. It's not going to cause any problems except maybe snow mold if it sits there for months and months and months. Like in my area, we look at it. If you're going to remove snow, I'd do it maybe till January 1st and then see what happens because... At this time of year, if we have a big snow and then a melt and you get the water standing there and you get the freeze, then you're in a position where if the weather doesn't warm back up, you could have that ice layer on there for too long in a hurry. It's not going to be long into January where you're going to count 30 days, 45 days, and then in the middle of January, good luck, right? I mean, you know, it might be polar vortex time again. Once you get to like January 1st around here, I would say I'd monitor. I wouldn't necessarily take off every snow event. Because once again, we're just worried about ice cover, potential for ice cover forming. Some courses do it all winter long. That's a tough one though, because you got to have the labor. It's not you, the superintendent and your assistant and or mechanic being able to go out there and snow remove on 18 greens. And if you're in a snowy climate, that can be, you know, multiple times a week sometimes if you're, if you're really doing that. So I think it's remove snow cover from the aspect of I'm concerned with icing events. So, so that's where I'd look at that. So it's kind of like, early, if this makes sense, early winter and late winter. When you're looking at the melt coming out of winter into spring, you want to reduce the potential for all that water sitting, getting trapped on the green, refreezing, causing more like the crown hydration type injury. No, that totally makes sense. So now let's dive into dive into the ice scenario. I mean, it's seeing some of the old, old images that we have in our USGA files of what people have done to, to try to break up ice. It's it's a little shocking. I'm curious to, you know, get your take on two things. We touched on a little with, you know, timing, how long if there's ice cover, you know, before you maybe think about doing something. And then what can you do or what do you think actually seems to work to, to break up some of that ice and get it off there? Yeah, so th- I think the first thing I do is, you know, anybody that has ice, try to monitor, try to grab some plugs, you know, bury, th- get through the ice, grab a plug, take it inside. It's not going to be representative of every plate of grass on your greens, but it's an idea. I think on annual bluegrass greens, anytime you're over a month, you're at risk. 
So it's like, you know, if you see it and you're at, you're at a month, um, to me, it's like you, you get it off or you risk death. And yeah, you might risk doing some damage by getting it off. But if you're going to be two months under ice cover, I don't think you're going to have any in most cases on annual bluegrass. Ways to get it off, you know, we've seen it all, right? Dark colored materials, sand, malorganite, whatever. Those do a good job of melting through if it's not thick ice. The thing you always have to remember once you melt it is where the, where's the water going? Yeah. And, and, you know, I tried to do, I did these research studies and it was kind of futile to be honest with you, because I was, I was working on about a two inch ice sheet. Things you don't consider, at least I didn't, is how short the day length is in January and February, how short that high temperature is. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like by, you know, you get out there, you're applying your treatments, like let's say, 8, 9 a.m. in the morning. By 3 p.m., you got decent melt, but guess what? The sun's going down and it's refreezing and you didn't get through the ice sheet yet. So it's like, what do you do? Start again the next day? Thin ice sheets, I think those products work great. Thick ones, I think it's kind of you're chasing your tail. So then it's vibratory tamp type things, uh, those plate tamps. I've seen those work well. You try to reduce the impact injury the best you can by spreading it out. So, you know, not necessarily taking a sledgehammer out there. But I mean, I've seen superintendents, I'm sure you have too, with uh, chainsaws trying to cut through ice and it's tough. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't envy any superintendent that tries to deal with a thick layer of ice and try to remove it in the middle of winter because it is a difficult task to get. And your, your point about you realize quickly how little sort of melting potential you have. And, you know, if you've, if you've got that in late January, early February, and it, it might get to 35, 36 degrees Fahrenheit, but only for an hour <laughs> and then the sun goes down and yeah it's you're you're right i i completely agree it's a very difficult position for superintendents to be in and i know you guys you and you and some others you're, you're working hard to try to understand as much about winter injury uh, as possible so i was excited to see i don't want to say just you but obviously you're a, a key person involved there in that eight million dollar federal grant uh, that's big money to you know work with a few universities to study winter injury preventional prevention. So super cool to to see that who you know who else is involved in that research. What exactly are you looking at, and what do you hope the outcome of the project is? It's very exciting, first of all, because uh, we've had a lot of ideas on this. Uh, Dr. Eric Watkins from University of Minnesota. He's really led the charge. He's a fantastic grant writer. Um, I wouldn't claim to be, <laughs> but he is. So it's like, he's one of those people, if you can get the ideas to, he can consolidate. He's great at forming this team of researchers. So, you know, we I, I hope I don't miss him, but we have University of Minnesota, obviously, Iowa State, Wisconsin, here at Michigan State, Rutgers, UMass. Don't think I'm missing anybody. And then we're working with a group over in Norway too, a research group over there. Uh, because when you talk, want to talk about consistent winter kill, I think they trump us in the United States. And, you know, there's a lot of different aspects to this. Um, so, you know, money spread across seven universities. Um, there's breeding efforts. There's management efforts. There's recovery efforts to, to try to research to get our hands around this. And a lot of it is just trying to under, even understand better what is really killing whether we're working obviously on annual bluegrass, but there's also some efforts to look at perennial ryegrass and how it's susceptible to low temperature kill, um, to sequence some of the genes in these grasses to see what's controlling these. Um, one of the things we're doing right now that we did um, before we got the funding this year, uh, we did this last winter also um, between locations in Michigan and in Minnesota, we set out um, these sensor packages on greens that were able to, we had both 
soil temperature, soil moisture, and soil gases with the idea of just, just trying to collect data to see how these things change over the year uh, or over the winter. Can we get to the point ultimately where we could develop a model where if we have this sensor package you could install in your green, let's say it's like the cost of a, you know, one of the handheld TDRs or something like that, 1500 to two grand or something. But we could build a model around that that would say, okay, when you get to this level of CO2, for example, or oxygen, or you get this soil temperature combined with moisture, um, you better take some action. In other words, you have the potential to lose these greens. That's kind of our ultimate hope that we could develop something like that. So it'd be very applicable to the superintendent in the field of being able to monitor winter conditions. Um, so that was, I, I, I don't know if we were like maybe about 10 courses last winter that we did this on. They made some modifications to the sensor package. It's going out again this year. I think we're maybe up to like 20 courses or something like that this year for the sensor packages. This is part, just one part of the grant, but it's kind of exciting to me because it looks at trying to get something to the end user ultimately out of this that could help them. So that's just one example. Um, it's a big grant. It's going to be four years of, four years of work, but it, it's a it's a great collaboration because we've all struggled with, you know how research funding goes. After the epic winter kill events in 13, 14, for example, everybody was interested in funding winter kill research. Now we haven't had that in a little while and everybody's kind of like, eh, well. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the, the superintendents that had it, they're still in tune because they still remember it. So they're, I mean, I'm not trying to say they're not supportive or the industry isn't supportive, but that's just the nature of the beast, right? Whatever, whatever is the most urgent thing now is what we tend to address. So we're, we're very excited. It took, this was the third year we submitted and it was probably gonna be the last year we submitted. So we were uh, very pleased that we, we got funding this time. Uh, are you still looking for golf courses to help collecting data? I know you, you guys had sent out an email maybe a month or two ago looking for more corroborators. I think we can still use more courses to participate in anywhere in the north. Basically, what we're looking for is uh, that they'll go out there. I, I think we take some images initially of the greens. I know it might be getting a little late for that now that we have snow cover in some places. But it's kind of just to monitor winter conditions on a green or two on your golf course to say, hey, we've got snow cover. This is a depth of snow, for example. Um, maybe take some pictures or something throughout the season. So it's not too intensive, but it's just trying to capture this net because we never know where the kill is going to occur or where, you know, if it does occur, you know, it might be in Minnesota this year, it might be in Wisconsin next year, it might be in Michigan, you know, three years from now. Um, so we're trying to get a, a better grasp on if we understand exactly the conditions that are going to cause damage, it gives us a better chance to try to mitigate those. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time, Kevin. I think this has been a, a fantastic discussion and no question is I think going to be a good resource for superintendents as they gear up and start really thinking about uh, winter injury and, and winter injury prevention. Thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Thanks for listening to our latest episode. This is going to be our last episode of the year, but we're already busy planning an exciting schedule for next year. If you have any suggestions for guests or potential topics, please let us know. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast through Spotify and subscribe to the Green Section Record, our digital magazine that includes information on the latest trends in golf course maintenance, uh, research information, and field observations from our team of regional agronomists.